thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Get your Bibles out. Colossians 1 is where I want you. Uh, we're, let, me, let me pray as we're turning there because I, I, I really <laughs> would like to do that. Father, we need you to send your spirit to illuminate your word to us. Uh, without your spirit, we won't be able to understand anything that your word says is true. So God, would you bless this time now, open our, our hearts and our eyes and our ears so that we might see, know, and love you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series called Mission, and, and, and we're really uh, kind of just allowing our mission to guide the way in exploring what God's Word says about our mission. And our mission is what? Multiplying faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So we've, we talked about multiplying, right? We, we studied that. We talked about faithful and what that means. And we talked about followers last week, right? What it means to follow. Now, I do want to just <laughs> say this. Uh, after our gathering this past Sunday, uh, uh, I don't know if you've met Kathy and Carlos. They're right there. Say hi. You say hi. They don't like the attention, I guess, but um, so they came up, and Kathy is, a, is an associate professor at the uh, University of UNC Pembroke, um, and she's in the English and theater department, and she came up to me and said, I'm really looking forward to your sermon on the word of next week, and, uh, and I, I kind of just said, I'm sure that the crowd is tired of school lessons. They've already had one in math. Do we need one in English? So uh, we're not going to be on the word of this week, but of course, the faithful followers that we're looking to multiply are following who? Jesus Christ. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Jesus Christ. That's who we're following. That's, that's where we find ourselves today. <laughs> A sermon about Jesus. Do you know how complicated it is? to preach a sermon about Jesus? Because where do you go? Every page is about him, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. You can find him everywhere in here. So where do you start? Any particular place would be sufficient, but what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about Jesus Christ in the context of our mission of multiplying faithful followers of him. And so that's why we're in Colossians 1. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just give you a forewarning. Sometimes pastors talk about sermons as taking a ride in an airplane. You intro with a, with a, with a, like you're taxiing and then and you get on the runway and you take off and then you land the plane, right? Kind of a sermon in, in, in that order. We're going to be taxiing and on the runway for a little while this morning. So bear with me. I know it's going to be longer than I usually uh, go uh, for taxiing and runway work, but uh, we need, we'll get here eventually. So hold on to your seatbelts. So the truth of what you and I believe, what we hold at the center of our gathering, uh, at the center of our belief structure is what we call the gospel, right? It's the euangelion. It is the good news, right? And the good news that God has spoken to us is an invitation, Ultimately, it's kind of like just, it's an invitation to come. Come. But don't, don't most religions or worldviews offer some sort of invitation to come? They do, right? But Christianity at its core is very different. 
Because Christianity isn't inviting us to a moral behavior system. It's not inviting us to a certain worldview, though it is, though it is part of it. The gospel isn't an invitation to a way of life, though we find a way of life in the gospel. The gospel isn't even an invitation to come and believe certain things or hold to a certain doctrinal standpoint. Though we do find ourselves believing certain things when we take the invitation of the gospel. The gospel doesn't even invite us to church. No, the gospel doesn't even invite us to the gospel itself. No, one author puts it this way. Most truly, we come to a person. The gospel at its core is an invitation to come to Jesus Christ, a person, to encounter and to experience Jesus, a historical, literal person in history. The gospel invites us to come and to deal with him, to figure him out. In fact, as Jesus' claims were so outrageously bold and naturally outlandish that you can't ignore him. You can't just dismiss him. You have to come to a conclusion about him. You just have to and who he is. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis made an argument famous, though there were others who had uh, made the argument before him, but he wrote about it in his book, Mere Christianity, and it's called a, a trilemma. Uh, so, so, it's taking a dilemma between two things and adding a third thing. But more recently, there's been a quad lemma added to it. So there's a fourth lemma, I guess, in this. So, so there's people who come to Jesus enough to say, well, Jesus is a good moral teacher. He said some really good things, but I can't accept his claims about him being God. I just can't go that far. But the problem is you can't do one without the other. You just can't. You can't do that. So C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So in other words, that's where we get our trilemma from. Right? We get the trilemma, either we must conclude that he was just a raging lunatic, needs to be locked away in the loony bin somewhere, deranged beyond comprehension, based on some of the things that he said. He's a lunatic or he's a liar who's just bent on totally deceiving the world. Or we get to our third option, where he is Lord. He is who he claims to be. He is very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed would say. Now, the, 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 the way the fourth issue, the fourth lemma that I mentioned comes in, the quad lemma comes in, is that some people say, well, what about legend? Well, he's maybe a liar, maybe he's a lunatic. He's not Lord, maybe he's just a legend. Maybe somebody conjured him up. Maybe those Jewish disciples made him up and exaggerated his character. But the problem is Jewish, and I can't go into why, but basically there's no standing for that in the scholarly world. And Lewis himself dealt with that later on in his own essays. So, so the, that's just ridiculous. So it's liar, lunatic, or Lord. You've got three options. You gotta come to one of them. Either way, you have to come to a conclusion about who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, really is. Now, of course, 
The gospel, the good news, is an invitation to come and to believe and to receive Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as Lord, the Savior, the Son of God. It invites us to come and be his disciples, to be his followers, or to learn from him. Now, I, I, uh, I read an article uh, in preparation for a lot of, I read a lot of things, not just a single article, but there was an article that I found very interesting uh, it was on our topic for today. And one of the things that it pointed out was that you and I, in our culture, we're a very pragmatic people. We're more pragmatic than we are reflective. And what that means, what he's saying is that we tend to ask the questions of what and how more than we do why. We obsess about how and what, but we hardly talk about the why. And this is true about the church. It's true about conversations and and discipleship. It's true about conversations and following Jesus. Well, what does it look like to follow Jesus? How do we multiply faithful followers? That's a lot of the questions that we've been asking these last few weeks. But not much of the conversation around discipleship orients itself around the question, why? In other words, what's the motivation? Now, the author of this article, he said, Practice itself can only take us so far. When hardship hits, practice needs motivation to continue. So our main controlling question today is not about the who is Jesus necessarily right now. It's not about the what does it mean to follow Jesus. It's not about the how to or the what. It's about the why. So, so the question that we're asking today is why follow Jesus? Why didn't we put some other name or thing at the end of our mission? Multiplying faithful followers of whatever it is, fill in the blank. Why didn't we fill something else in there? Why Jesus Christ? Guys, this is one of the most important questions that you can ever ask yourself because it can either shape your faith or shake your faith. Let me give you an example. So let's say you've been faithfully witnessing to a friend that you have and she asks you the question, well, why? Why should I follow Jesus? What's our typical response? We usually tell them the most attractive things about our faith. We say things like, oh, well, Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is gonna give you an abundant life. It's gonna be a full life. He's, he's gonna offer you peace between you and God. Man, he gives you so many good things. He literally shows you the way of life. So if your life is pretty messed up here, follow Jesus and you get a better one. Now, in and of themselves, those things are not wrong. But let's keep following this illustration. So that's what you say, and she buys it. She's like, all right, that sounds pretty good. I'll take it. I'll have that. I'll have what you're ordering. So she starts coming to church. She starts getting involved in some of the events around here and she finds out that Christians aren't really that weird. Not only that, but there are people who start to care about her, who who ask her about her life. Man, and there's even some cute guys at church too. This is pretty cool. Then at that moment, the storm just rolls right in. Her older brother who she admires, gets in a massive car accident, devastating. And he's on life support and it's not looking good. So she starts getting the church together and they start praying. She wants God to heal him and he doesn't. And her brother passes away into death, not knowing Jesus. 
She doesn't understand why God didn't answer her prayers. And she's struggling. And at this point, she runs into an old friend who takes her out for drinks and she finds the, the, the numbing pain of the stupor of intoxication helping with the loss, helping her cope, helping her deal. And then she meets this guy who's nice to her and she feels better around him and so she gives herself to him without any covenant between the two of them and her Christian experience just fades away. Then when you go and talk to her about her faith and ask where she's at with Jesus, she said, oh, well, I, I tried the Jesus thing and it worked for a little bit, but I've got something that's working for me right now and, and, and I don't need Jesus anymore. He, he got me through certain things. I've, I've, I've moved on. Why did she wander off from her faith? Was it because Jesus broke his promises about offering her an abundant life? It was her own motives. It was why she came to Jesus in the first place. She was intending Jesus to be a means to the end of her happiness. She wasn't intending to wrestle with what is objectively true outside of her happiness or outside of what works for her. As I don't know if you noticed this, but anytime you read Jesus's words, he often forces us into that place where we constantly have to examine our motives for why we follow Jesus. And he's very clear about one thing in all of it. If our primary motive in following Jesus is the comfort, the ease, and the indulgence of self, then we won't be following him with the motives required to endure any kind of suffering on his behalf. Guys, Jesus is clear about this. We must be motivated by something more than what he can do for us. We must be motivated to follow Jesus by something more than our own comfort or our own community. So guys, you, you gotta ask yourself the question. Why do you follow Jesus? Because I guarantee you, if you don't have that figured out, then we're never going to accomplish our mission. If you don't know why you follow Jesus, then why would you want to invite others to do the same? Why do you follow Jesus? What seems to be the primary motive? What's the fuel? I mean, do you know the answer? I mean, some of you might look back You don't know the answer now, but you knew back then when you first started on this journey with Jesus. Some of you, you jumped on board the Jesus train because you had a guilty conscience and you wanted to find relief for it. Others of you may have had like a broken marriage and you came to Jesus begging for him to heal your marriage, hoping that he would fix it. Others of you were were probably just told that Jesus is a way to escape hell and get into heaven, which you know, that's, that's better. Now, now I need, need to be careful. There's things that I'm not saying. Can Jesus relieve us of our guilt for sin? Praise God, he does. does. Does Jesus have the power to heal a broken marriage? Amen, he does. Is Jesus the way to, to the Father and refuge from wrath and hell? Absolutely, praise the name of Jesus, he is. 
But is that what he always promises? You know, the things that I, I find when he promises to those who follow him, he says, I, I can't promise you shelter. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know what else he promises? He promises that those who follow him are going to encounter insane tribulation in the world. He promised. And that's exactly why you and I have brothers and sisters in Christ over in Afghanistan, about 8,000, maybe 10,000 brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are now being hunted down by a newly established overthrowing government by the Taliban. We have brothers and sisters there whose neighbors could just turn them in to be relieved of the presence of Christ in their neighborhood. So these Christians are having to flee into the mountains and finding refuge. And yet they still follow Jesus. Now, now, now what on earth can, can energize, what on earth can motivate such an allegiance in the face of that kind of adversity. Dads, imagine waking up one morning and you see the news that some hostile government takeover has happened and and now they're targeting your kids and you and your wife. What on earth would motivate such an allegiance to say, nope, I will not be swayed. Jesus is mine and I am his forevermore. Do what you must. Here I stand. I can do no other. What can motivate that? What can motivate such an allegiance? It's clearly not what Jesus can do for them. Now, of course, I'm not saying, like, Jesus, he, he has done, he is now doing, and he will continue to do so much on our behalf for our good. But to follow Jesus simply because of what he can do for you still puts who as the primary motive? Me. And as we talked about last week, me has to be denied. If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. So you haven't died to yourself yet. So that when things get bad and you get really uncomfortable and the pressure starts rising and things get hot and and life gets hard and persecution just rises, that self-centered motive for following Jesus won't carry you through any of it. It won't last. Our motive our answer for why we follow Jesus has to be more objective than our own experience. It has to be more objective than what Jesus can do for me, what Jesus can do for you. No, no, no. Our motive for following Jesus is because of who he is. It's because of who he is, not because of what he can do for us, We follow Jesus because of his nature, because of his character, because of his beauty and his glory, his perfections, his titles, his positions, his accomplishments, and his accolades. We follow Jesus because of Jesus, because of all that he is. 
which then means that we must now ask the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that deserves such allegiance? You and I can talk a lot about what Jesus did. Well, who is Jesus? Oh, he's the guy who died on the cross and rose from the dead for my sins. Yeah, that's what he did, but do you realize what you do is an overflow of who you are? Right? What he did flows out of who he is. So have we ever asked questions like, well, what's the heart of Jesus? What's it like? Who is Jesus? What's his character? What's his nature? How does he deal with people like you and me? So today we're gonna to be entering into a field of theology that's called Christology. It's, it's what's central to all of Christian thought and reflection. We're gonna study Jesus. We're gonna answer the question, who he is. And brothers and sisters, what can I say? What would be enough to describe Jesus? This is enough, but it's not all. Because I guarantee you, there's gonna be a day when our faith turns to sight, we see him face to face and we're gonna get a whole new perspective. What we know about him in word and in truth we'll experience face to face. So we'll start with this. This is enough. We're in Colossians 1. Guys, I don't think there's too many supreme passages apart from like John 1, Colossians 1, and maybe Philippians 2 that describe the nature of Jesus. So we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna be in Colossians chapter one today. And I gotta tell you, we're not gonna be able to give as much attention to this text as it deserves, but we'll, we'll just start. We'll see what the Lord does. Just for context's sake, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae and, and he's describing to this church how he's been praying for them in, in, in the part of chapter one where we're at. He's praying for them, he's praying for their faith. And then he enters into this time, into this section where he starts expressing in his prayer gratitude to the Father for what he's done. And that's where we start in verse 13. Colossians 1 verse 13. He being the father has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, aka the son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, the son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have, so he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ooh. So Colossians 1 gets interrupted by a song or a hymn. It's often described as a poem or a hymn to Jesus, a hymn of praise to the Christ. And you can see two clear sections in it. Two clear sections. The first is from verse 15 through verse uh, 17. And then verse 18 starts a new section. In the first section, we find a, a relationship between Jesus and his creation. It presents Jesus in relation to the created world. The second portion of this hymn presents Jesus in relationship with the redemption of what he created. And we're just gonna walk through this hymn to Jesus together. And it starts off with first saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Guys, God for millennia had yet to be visibly seen face to face like I see you now and you see me now. He was invisible in our reality, yet he was known, he had expressed himself. But Jesus here is saying that Jesus is God becoming visible. He's being manifested in Jesus. Jesus manifests God, not just through his actions or his words, but in his nature, in his character. He shares the same substance, the same meaning, meaning Jesus is God. So what this means is then what we know to be true about God is true of Jesus. And what we know to be true about Jesus is true of God. So if you can remember, about a year ago, we were in a sermon series called A Glimpse of Glory. It felt like we were in it for 40 years, right? But it was only just a few weeks. And in that series, we talked about what we called the glory of God, the beautiful perfections of God's sovereign character. And we looked at all that he is. And what we're saying today is that if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then what's true about Yahweh is also true about Yeshua. It's true about Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps that love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he's just, he doesn't clear the guilty. He's holy. We see Jesus' mercy. We see his compassion over the crowds who were like sheep without a shepherd and he heals them, he feeds them. We see his forgiveness as he requests it for those who are crucifying him. We see his love in him going all the way to the cross to lay down his life for the benefit of another. We see his intimacy and his warmth with his followers as he draws people unto himself. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Next we see what? Verse 15, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now that doesn't mean uh, that he was the firstborn as part of the whole of creation as if he came into existence. You know, firstborn doesn't mean that in biblical context. It indicates a special relationship with God the Father. 
It's one of privilege. It's one of position. So King David was said to be the firstborn of many kings of the earth. In other words, he had a unique relationship with God, the Father. He stood in excellence above over the kings in the same way Jesus is preeminent, standing in excellence over all of creation. Why? Well, what's verse 16 says, say? Because everything was created by and for Jesus. Look at it, it says, everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It's like, it's like an artist who makes a sculpture and he, he has the image and he fashions it together and he puts it in its place and people can admire it, but it always points people back to the artist. In the same way, creation was Jesus's idea and he carried out the plans with his father and the spirit, the Godhead three in one. So everything that's in existence, everything created owes its existence and its purpose to Jesus. As Jesus is the goal of all creation. One pastor put it this way, if you were to dissect an object all the way down to its molecular level and you were to take a microscope and look in that molecule, every single molecule that makes up everything that matters in this world has inscribed on it, for Jesus, by Jesus. By Jesus, for Jesus. Even the visible and the invisible thrones Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, whether they're angelic or fallen, whether they're physical or political or national, whatever it is, Jesus is immeasurably superior in every way over whatever might rival may come against. Let me get to verse 17. It hasn't stopped yet. It says, Jesus is before all things. Now, obviously, there's a temporal sense to this where he comes before all things. Nothing existed, but he was. He came before all things, which also makes him a prominent figure above creation as supreme. Not only is he before all things, but verse 17 says what? That he holds all things together. Everything that exists is held together by the person Jesus. So were it not for Jesus, every molecular bond would fall apart. Every planetary orbit would break. Every data point in the laws of the universe would flux. Jesus right now is keeping everything in the universe in order and in balance. So our creator The son of God, Jesus, hasn't forgotten the creation, nor did he make creation self-sufficient. It is totally reliant upon his all-sustaining power. And that concludes part one of this hymn. In Jesus' relationship to creation. And now we enter into part two, where it talks about Jesus' relationship with the redeemed creation. Look at verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the what? The church. So those, those who are redeemed, those who have been purchased by Jesus' blood, they are called out of the creation that we see in part one. 
They're called out and they're brought into the body of Christ where he is in perfect authority over his bride, the church. He's the head of the body of the church. Verse 18, he is the beginning. Now again, we're not just talking about the beginning of creation. That's already been explored. He was before it and he created all things, right? But it's not just of creation. We're talking about the new creation here. Jesus ushered in a new age of redemption in his resurrection. And it's an age marked by freedom and forgiveness, reconciliation and peace. Then it also says here that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Remember, we're not talking about the firstborn out of a womb. We're talking about he is the first and preeminent resurrected being. The first of his kind in resurrection life, which, which forces us to recall the fact that Jesus must first, who was infinite God before all things, holding all things together, This God entered into our reality. He took on flesh. He endured our punishment on the cross, going to death, into the grave, and he rose in victory over sin and death. So Jesus begins a new order of existence. Jesus begins a resurrection existence. For what purpose? Look at verse 18 so that he might come to have first place in everything. Guys, Jesus always wins first. He don't come second, third, or fourth. No, he's always in first place when it comes to the race. Jesus, oh man, he is fairer. He is brighter. He is fuller. He is shining brighter than anything. And nothing can outdo Jesus. He comes first in all things. Why? Why should Jesus have first place in everything? Well, look at verse 19. Because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Why must Jesus be first in all things? Why is Jesus first in all things? Because he's God. Because he's very God of very God. This points us back to the truth that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is all of God's properties, all of his prosperities, all of his characteristics, all of his prerogatives in the flesh, fully divine. And not only did it please God to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, look at verse 20. It also pleased God to, through Jesus, reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. So Jesus is the Father making peace with a rebellious, alienated, hostile creation at the expense of his own son. And that peace invites us back to enjoy God. All because of who Jesus is. This is the hymn of Christ. This is the song about Jesus. Can you see his glory?
Can you, can you see how majestic Jesus is? Can you see who he is? Jesus is the image of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is the creator of all things, the purpose of all things. He is before all things. He holds all things together. He is the head of the church. He is the dawning of redemption. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. He is first in all things. He is the fullness of God in human flesh, the reconciliation to God, the security of peace, and the sacrifice offered to obtain it. And guys, all of that in just six verses. In a single part of this. Scripture will tell us in other places that Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly. That he is kind and that he is intimate. It says that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He comes and he deals gently with our waywardness. He never casts us out. He advocates for us. Talk about personal. But it also says, it tells us that Jesus is the true prophet. Meaning he, he's, he's faithfully speaking the words of God that are true. He is the high priest who goes between and offers the ultimate and final sacrifice so that no sacrifice needs to be offered anymore once for all. And he's also the reigning king. He's bearing all authority over heaven and earth. So he is prophet, priest, king, savior, Lord, and so on. Can you see him? Can you see who he is? Guys, this is so important for us because this means that our directive to multiply faithful followers of Jesus isn't issued to us by some weak, petty, broken man who fell victim to some mean people who made a mistake in killing him in a really bad way. That's not who issues our mission. No, our mandated mission is preceded by the image of a risen, radiant, sovereign king rippling with power and authority over all things, strong enough to depose of nations and yet glorious enough to summon their worship. And he will one day come with fire in his eyes and conquer every enemy who stands against him and his coming kingdom will reign forever. Guys, this is who we follow. And this is who we're inviting people to follow. So this means, this means that we're not sent out on this mission in the authority of our own experience. Nope, nope. We're sent out in the authority of his kingship. It's coming. Our story itself, our testimony isn't sufficient enough to make a disciple, but Jesus' story is. So multiplying followers of all nations is not just a personal cause that we take up because we think it's cool. No, it is the redemptive agenda of God himself for all of creation. And we get to be a part of it. And so our motivation for following Jesus and our motivation for accomplishing our mission are one and the same. And you and I desperately need to recover this singular motivation and we need to make it our own by God's grace alone so that at whatever cost may come, we'll pay it. Whatever sacrifice is demanded of us, we'll make it. 
Like the man in Matthew 13 who goes out and he finds that treasure buried in his field and he, he sees its magnificence and its glory and he, he reburies it and he goes home and with joy he sells everything that he has so that he can buy that field. That motivation, that such allegiance and devotion to that treasure is the same thing that motivates us in our following Jesus and our wanting and accomplishing the mission of multiplying faithful followers of Jesus Christ. What is the motivation? Why follow Jesus? Because of his infinite sufficiency and supremacy. Because of how grand he is how majestic and how beautiful, how perfect he is. We follow Jesus because of who he is. And the song of Colossians 1 is telling us that he is infinite in his sufficiency and his supremacy over all things. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul tells us that like, he started to endure some some intense suffering and trial and, and he wrote about it and he said, he's able to endure it. He says, because I know whom I have believed. Do you know whom you believe? Not just, I'm not just talking about, yeah, I know what Jesus did for you. No, do you know his heart? Have you encountered him? Do you know this Jesus? Brothers and sisters, if, if you don't, then today is the day, Lord willing, that you start to get to know him more and more because, brothers and sisters, the gospel at its core is an invitation to come and enjoy a relationship with God that was secured for us who were in rebellion by a pure spotless lamb being sacrificed on a cross. His name was Jesus. And he just so happens to be the creator and sustainer of all things. And he wants you to come enjoy him. To know his heart. To walk with him. The gospel is an invitation to a relationship with the God-man who is infinitely sufficient and supreme over all things. In other words, he's worth following because he'll never break. He'll never fail. He'll never falter or stumble like everything else in this world that asks you to follow it. He will never fail. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.